This morning we continue looking at our study in Exodus, looking today at Exodus chapters 5 and 6. In the early 1800s, a song was composed in the Americas. It was a song that spoke of freedom and community, a song that united rather than bringing the focus onto the individual. It was a song that used biblical imagery, expressing the desire for a release from bondage, a song that is marked by its strong tone of determination in the struggle for freedom. It was a popular slave song and was sung throughout the southern states by slaves while they worked and during their occasional times of rest and prayer. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land, and tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Exodus 5 and 6 is God's command to Pharaoh to let his people go. It was time for God's people to be free. Chapter 4 ends with Moses meeting Aaron and together they go up to Egypt to meet with the elders of the Israelites. In Exodus 4 verses 29 to 31 says, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. There was now hope. After the report had been given to the elders, they believed that the message was from God. And more, they worshipped the Lord. This was their response as they started to understand who the Lord was and that he was concerned about them in their misery. They catch a glimpse of the God of their salvation. Moses and Aaron are encouraged. They now know the support of these elders of the Israelites and so they go to Pharaoh. And verse 1 in chapter 5 opens with Moses and Aaron going to the Pharaoh and saying, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. They've done it. They have gone and they have delivered the command that God had sent to Pharaoh. The problem is that Pharaoh didn't see it so much as a command but as a request and he flatly refuses what Moses and Aaron are asking. See, Egypt was a polytheistic society. They worshipped many gods. So it is no surprise that when Moses and Aaron speak of the Hebrew god Yahweh, as we had looked at last week, meaning the Lord, Pharaoh doesn't know who he is talking about. And not knowing who this God is, Pharaoh asked the question, why should he do anything that this God says? Well, Moses does a follow-up. He comes around again to the command, this time being more specific and describing the Lord as the God of the Hebrews. The Hebrews, the children of Israel, that group of people who were now enslaved by Pharaoh. In this follow-up explanation, Moses states that the God of the Hebrews has met with them. He also explains in more detail about the festival 
that they are to go on a three-day journey, a six-day round trip, which would involve taking livestock for sacrifice. This was a festival of worship. This was God's people coming together in worship and praise of their God, taking their Shabbat or Sabbath, that time of rest set aside in worship of God. And this isn't an unusual request. It had happened before, and it happened after it. Historical records in the Louvre in Paris show that at the time of Ramesses II, Egyptian slaves were allowed time off to go and offer sacrifices to their god or the god that they worshipped. But why was Pharaoh not allowing it in this case? Well, verses 4 and 5 show us Pharaoh's real issue with not allowing the people to go. And it boils down to the same reason and issue that we talk about day by day. It comes down to economics. I suppose today we say it comes down to money. But think of the size of this people. These slaves who were working on behalf of Pharaoh on this massive building project that he was taking. To lose them for the best part of a week, the work would slow down, the work would stop. It was a massive workforce. Pharaoh was concerned about his own interests rather than the interests of others. As soon as Moses and Aaron depart, the Pharaoh issues a new decree. The decree will mean that the Israelites will have to work twice as hard and it is a ruthless way to ensure that they stick to the way that they have known in service, in slavery of Pharaoh, sticking to their jobs. And Pharaoh has a little bit of logic behind this new command. He says that the people are lazy. He's going to keep them working because they're lazy. They're looking this time off to go and just waste it, to get away from work because they just can't do it. They don't want to do it. They couldn't be bothered. So he ensures that he will keep them working. And they are to continue making the bricks, the bricks that were required for this massive project that the Pharaoh was undertaking. But from now on, the bricks weren't just going to be as easy made. Because previously everything was provided, but now there would be no straw. The straw was needed to hold the bricks together. But now the people, as well as making these bricks, had to go and collect the straw, find it for themselves. And the final demand is the one that really takes the biscuit. Because the final demand says there's not to be one less brick per day. The quota still has to stay. The people still have to do what they've always been doing and keep to the same number, but in harder circumstances. In Egypt, bricks were rectangular in shape. They were 12 inches long, 6 inches tall, and 6 inches deep, if you're interested in knowing how they did it. They were made from a mixture uh, of clay and mud and chopped wheat and barley stalks. And it was in uh, the stalks or the decaying straw that an acid was produced that would help bind it all together and hold it together. So as the people went out looking for straw, not only was it wasting their time in the bricks that they had to make, but they couldn't find it. So what they found instead was stubble, the bit that is left over in the harvest field. They went round and collected this dry stubble, which of course was useless in the properties that were needed to ensure that the bricks were of good quality. And Pharaoh knew. He knew that this was going to be an impossible task. He knew that what he was asking could not be done. 
But he does it. He does it to prove his point, to drive home and to drive out of these people their need or their wanting of a holiday, a religious festival. And so the command is passed down from Pharaoh. It goes from Pharaoh to the slave drivers, the Egyptians put in charge of overseeing all the work. And they pass it down to the foreman, the people from the Israelites who were put in place to make sure that the Israelites did their job. The seriousness of the work is brought home to us as we see it in verse 14 when the Israelite four men are beaten because the quotas are not being met. And it is at this point in chapter 5 that we start to see what this chapter is really about. The focus that is here is one that is a question we must ask ourselves also. Chapter 5 is all about control. Who is going to control the Israelites? Or who are they going to allow to control them? The foremen are now bruised and battered because they have been beaten for the quotas not being met. And so they go and make a direct appeal to Pharaoh. They put out their case, saying that it's not fair, that how can he expect this from them? But the tyrant again calls them lazy and reiterates that they must get their own straw and keep to their daily quotas. They knew that they were in trouble. They knew that Pharaoh had it out against them, but they had to keep going. And when they left Pharaoh, they were met by Moses and Aaron. And instead of accepting what Moses had said to them as the authority coming from God, they are now turning against him, calling down curses on him that God would do something to him for the punishment that he has brought about on the children of Israel. They start to blame Moses for their misery. Round one has been won. And it's been won by Pharaoh. He has got control of these people. The foremen now are obeying Pharaoh rather than God. These foremen have a conflict. The conflict is real and is raging within them. Obey the Pharaoh and make the best of a bad lot. Or believe the word that Moses brings. A message of salvation from their God. As we reach to the end of verse 21, they have gone for the easy option. They have submitted to Pharaoh and they do what he says. The foreman of pressure on every side. They have pressure from the slave drivers, the one who were keeping them in check so that they would keep their own people in check. Pressure from their own people, the Israelites, of the misery that they now find themselves in. Pressure from Pharaoh of what he is requesting. And then pressure from Moses and Aaron and the message that comes from God. These men, no pressure. But today, we have pressure all around us. We face it on every side, just like we have the example of these foremen in Egypt The world seems to be changing in dramatic ways. The security we once knew of a familiar world is disappearing as secularization is taking hold. Secularization is the transformation by which a society migrates from close identification with religious institutions to a more separated relationship. We see the effects of secularization in our schools, in our hospitals, and in the behavior of our society. And dare we say 
that we even see it creeping into the body of Christ, into the church as denominations move from foundational biblical positions so that they can be seen as more tolerant and more acceptable in the world. The pressure is all around us. The question is, whom are we going to serve? Who or what is it that is going to consume our focus, our energy and our time? Matthew chapter 6 contains part of the Sermon on the Mount. And a section of that we read uh, in a few verses of chapter 6 in Matthew where it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This passage in the New International Version is referring to treasures that we store up for ourselves. But can we relate it to our own attitudes of other things that fight for our time? Those things that seem more important to us than a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We cannot serve both as our masters. It must only be one the God of our salvation, the one who has promised to save us and keep us and make us his own. He is to be our master, not the masters of this world, the masters of money, the masters of time, the masters of how we spend our lives in sport or our hobbies or whatever we do. Yes, time of rest and relaxation, times of focus that is in society is good. Don't misunderstand me in this. But when our primary focus is not centered on Christ, well then he is not our master. Whom are we serving today? See, the foremen were missing out on this fact. They didn't see the salvation that God had for them. They didn't believe the word of the Lord that came through Moses. They were too concerned about their short-term trouble and ignored the long-term gain of salvation. Where are you? Right now in your mind and in your heart, where are you? What is consuming your life? Are you allowing the influences of the world to take over and take root? Or are you allowing Christ to be your master so that you can enjoy a relationship with God again as we know him, the God of our salvation? We move from verse 22 and then on into chapter 6. And here we have Moses coming before God, confused as to why God has not done anything. It's almost as if Moses is offended and taking it personally 
that Pharaoh has rejected him. He seems to have forgotten what God had said in chapter 4, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. What we have here is Moses' raw emotion. He is being real with God, who is concerned about his people. Verses 1 to 8 in chapter 6 open with God reassuring Moses of the promises that he has made, or the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would save his people and give them a land of their own. And it was important It was important that this should happen, that these promises were renewed to Moses because the situation is heightened in three different ways. First of all, the labor and oppression of Pharaoh had intensified. It had intensified so much that the people were now turning away from Moses, not trusting and believing in him. Secondly, the Hebrew taskmasters had called upon the Lord to judge Moses. So it wasn't just turning from Moses and what he was saying. It was now desiring a higher level of punishment on Moses for what they'd seen as his fault in Pharaoh's response. And thirdly, we have Moses himself as he cries out to God in distress. Moses feels isolated. But he is being addressed by a God who is all about salvation. Moses is commanded to go. And as God has recounted this historical path to him about what God has promised, God says, now go and tell my people to remind them of what I have promised and that I will fulfill. The full extent of the people's plight is seen in their response in verse 9. They don't want to know. They've had enough. Moses has come and wheeled out these things before them before and Nothing's happened. They do not want to know. Because, as the Bible says, of their discouragement and cruel bondage, they do not listen. Moses comes back to God. He comes back to him completely drained and despondent himself. And God again tells him to go to Pharaoh. But Moses answers, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips. We had thought in the past couple of weeks of Moses trying to get out of it. Well, is Moses doing it again? Is he now trying to get out of having to go to Pharaoh with this message, let my people go? Or is he genuinely discouraged? Has he had enough of the verbal attacks? Has he had enough of the the hurt that he feels with his own people turning against him? Either way, Moses is being human. He is being real before God. God wants us to be real before him because he knows us. He knows the troubles we face. He knows the issues that annoy us and upset us. He knows the difficulties of life, the unexpected things that come our way and throw us off course. But he wants a relationship with us. And a relationship requires communication. We can't just sit back and say, well, if God knows it all, he knows everything of me. That may be true, but God wants us to come to him with what is on our hearts. Because that is the level that God works at. Not just in what we do and how he leads us, but in our hearts, our attitudes. And he wants to hear from us. And this is something that we have talked about over the past number of weeks about being real with God. And we have many examples 
in Scripture of people going before God and crying out, being open and honest, things that we think we shouldn't say to God. Psalm 63 or 69 verse 3, the psalmist writes, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes feel looking for my God. If that's not honesty and openness and tiredness and exhaustion of someone seeking God, then I don't know what is. Moses cries out to God. Why have you not done what you said you will do? People aren't doing what you want them to do. I don't know if I can go on anymore. I don't know if I can do this. Moses is looking at a situation where God had promised, but had not delivered. The problem with Moses, Moses was thinking in a time scale that was his, and that was not God's. Because in God's time, he would bring it to fulfillment. And through this lesson, we must learn that it is God's time We are to cry out and we are to be real with God. We are to let him hear from our innermost being so that we will have that relationship, that relationship that is open and honest. Have you seen those nodding dogs? I suppose they all started in the back of cars on the the parcel rack in the back of cars that as the car moves, the head goes, and as they go over a bump, the head goes faster and all of that. Well, some reason now you don't see them in cars too much and they've made their way into people's homes. And if you happen to be in someone's home, the next time you're there, whether it's appropriate or not, points his head. And what does it do? Keeps going at a steady pace. Eventually it will slow down. I'm guessing the weights that are in the head make it go at a steady pace for quite a while. All too often in the Christian life, we think that is what our response is supposed to be. Constant, the same, never changing. But yet if we think of one of these dogs in the back of a car, and if you go over a speed bump or you go over something that knocks the car, the head will go... That's what it will do. It will go steady, then violently, then steady, as the journey changes. That's the journey of life. The journey of life that God knows about because he created life. His son was in this world and lived this life. He wants us to nod our heads violently as that dog does whenever things come its way that upset it and move it in ways it it doesn't know how to deal with. He wants us Not to be constant, but to be real and to open our hearts to him, to cry out to him so that we can be his people and we will have the delight in knowing him as our God. Where are you at the moment in your life? A question I'm coming to ask more and more of myself and of those I meet. As we think of what we've looked at today, what is controlling you? Is it the world with all its influences? Is it that what is controlling us? Or is it God? 
Is it a relationship with him through Jesus Christ? If we have a relationship with God, God says, be real with me. Don't be polite. Don't treat me as if you need to to bow and go through a whole system of what you think is going to please me. But be real with me. Just as we read it in the Psalms. Just as we read it with biblical characters throughout the Old and the New Testament. Don't just plod along, but respond to God. Don't be polite, sensitive, or inoffensive. Trust God to be God, so that he will be what he has promised to be. God knows us, for he created us. Be real with him, and let him be the God that is your focus that is the center of your being, but more importantly, the God of your salvation. Let's pray.